renown. His crimes, however, rather than his virtues, have illustrated and distinguished him with an unhappy preeminence above all other created things. His heart is evil, and left to its uncontrolled impulses, he becomes licentious, merciless, and more cruel than the fiercest beast of prey. Such is the being that claims the independent sovereignty of the globe. He has founded dominions, principalities, and powers. He has built great cities and vaunted himself, vaunted himself in the works of his hand, saying, Are not these by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? He repudiates all lordship over him and claims the inalienable and inherent right of self-government and of establishing whatever civil and ecclesiastical institutions are best suited to his sensuality and caprice. Hence, at successive periods, the earth has, earth, earth has become the arena of fierce and pandemoniac conflicts. Its tragedies have baptized its soil in blood, and the mingled cries of the opponent and the victim have ascended to the throne of the Most High. Skilled in the wisdom which comes from beneath, he is by nature ignorant of that which is first pure and then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. This is a disposition to which the animal man, under the guidance of his fleshly mind, has no affinity. His propensity is to obey the lust of his nature and to do its evil works, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, sex, envying, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. All these make up the character of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, upon which is enstamped the seal of God's eternal reprobation. They who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, but they shall die. Such is the world of humankind, the great and impious enemy of God upon the earth. Its mind is not subject to his law, neither indeed can be. What shall we say to these things? Is the world as we behold it a finality? Are generations of men rebellious against God and destroyers of the earth to occupy it successively through the endless series of ages? Are men to repeat the history of the past forever? Is the, is the earth always to be cursed and sin and death to reign victorious? Who can answer these inquiries? If we survey this starry canopy, thence no sign or voice is given expressive of the truth. They declare the eternal power and divinity of their creator, but they speak not of the destiny of the earth or of man upon it. If we question the mountains and hills, the plains and valleys, the rivers, seas, and oceans of the earth, and demand their origin, why they were produced, to what end they were created, their rocks, their strata, their fossils or deposits afford us no response. Turn we to man and ask him 
Whence comest thou, and what is thy destiny? Whence all the evil of thy nature, and why art thou mortal? Who made thee? Who involved thee in the widespread ruin and calamity on every side? Ask the infant of days the history of the past, and he can as well detail it as man can answer these inquiries without a revelation from him who is before all and to whom is known from the beginning all he intends shall come to pass. So true is it that unaided by light from heaven since the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee what is prepared for him that waiteth for what is prepared for him that waiteth for him. But, adds the apostle in his comment upon these words of the prophet, God hath revealed these things unto us by his spirit, which things we, the apostles, speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Spirit teacheth, interpreting spiritual things in spiritual words. To the Bible, then, all must come at last, if they would be truly wise in spiritual things. This is a great truth which few of the sons of men have learned to appreciate according to its importance. A man may be a theologian profoundly skilled in all questions of divinity. He may be well versed in the mythology of the heathen world, be able to speak all languages of the nations, compute the distances of orb from orb, and weigh them in the scales of rigid calculation. He may know all science and be able to solve all mysteries. But if, with all this, he be ignorant of the things of the Spirit, if he know not the true meaning of the Bible, he seemeth only to be wise, while he is, in fact, a fool. Therefore the apostle saith, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. Therefore let no man glory in men. If our contemporaries could only attain to the adoption of this great precept, let no man glory in men, they would have overleaped a barrier which, as a fatal obstacle, prevents myriads from understanding and obeying the truth. But while God lightly esteems the wisdom of the reputed wise, there is a wisdom which he invites all men to embrace. This is styled the wisdom of God in a mystery. It is also termed the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world, which none of the princes of this world knew. It is said to be hidden in a mystery, because, until the apostolic age, it was not clearly made known. This will appear from the following text. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to the re revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret in the times of the ages, but now, that is in the time or age of the apostles, is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. By revelation, God made known unto me, Paul, the mystery, which in other ages, that is, former ages under the law of Moses, was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto the holy apostles and prophets. 
holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promises in Christ by the gospel. Here is the knowledge of God, in which are contained exceeding great and precious promises, the understanding of which is able to make a man wise and a partaker of the divine nature. Now, although these hidden things have been clearly made known, they still continue to be styled the mystery, not because of their unintelligibility, but because they were once secret. Hence the things preached unto the Gentiles and by them believed are styled by Paul the mystery of the faith and the mystery of godliness, some of the items of which he enumerates, such as God manifest in the flesh, justified by the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Thus an intelligible mystery characterizes the once hidden wisdom of God and becomes the subject matter of an enlightened faith. This, however, is not the case with regard to religious systems, which are not of the truth. Unintelligible mystery is the ultima ratio for all difficulties which are insoluble by the symbols of ecclesiastical communities, whose text of universal application is that secret things belong to God, but the things which are revealed to us and to our children. This is true, but then these things which were secret in the days of Moses have been revealed by God to the apostles and prophets for our information. That's about the first three and a half pages of Alpha's Israel, and, and Brother Thomas goes on in the next paragraph to, uh, to make this statement that many of us are very familiar with, that no man has the right to set up his own ignorance as an excuse for not knowing these things of God. It's been my application, my understanding or experience, and it's not uh, not a hundred percent true. But uh, in the Christadelphian experience, that many times a young person who who comes into the truth, quite often in his early years, will give a talk in some area about what's wrong with the Christadelphians. In other words, it takes us about two years to understand all of the uh, dozens of years that Christadelphians have tried to uh, maintain their faith and live their lives. And uh, somebody wet behind the ears uh, can give us all the answers. Uh, Of course, that's not our, we don't know, after several years of experience, we don't, claim to know what's wrong with the Christadelphians. We do have an exhortation to examine ourselves and to see if there uh, exists in us that degree of faith and that performance which the Bible calls on us to give. We also want to say, uh, maybe once and uh, we don't need to repeat it that many times during this class because we're going to, we are going to, as I said, to deal with some chronological data. But that no man knows the day or the hour. We can't. None of us here even knows what's going to happen tomorrow. We uh, we have sort of a uh, 
embedded philosophy, I think, most of us, that we are going to be here tomorrow and probably the next day. And then when we feel uh, we probably don't project ourselves out too many years, but, but sort of psychologically we feel like, well, tomorrow will come, the sun will rise, and we'll do whatever we plan to do. But as far as the coming of Christ and the culmination of God's eternal plan, no man knows exactly the time. One of the things that uh, prompted our interest to deal with this subject, uh, actually there are about two things. One, and I, and I think that most of the speakers that treat of prophecy, they, of course they all say we're near the coming of Christ, and brethren had been saying this for a hundred years, and I, and I don't discount the fact that they were sincere in saying this, and that there were evident signs in the late 1800s and in the early 1900s that conditions in the, in the uh, morality of the world and the uh, movement of the nations suggested that, that this could be the very last time. But we think that they have failed to treat of this uh, in the chronological sense. That is, to use the creation date of 4004 B.C., which we're going to try to prove uh, this week from, from the Bible, uh, that if, if 4004 B.C. is the creation date, and if God does have a 7,000 years, of which 6,000 are dedicated to the kingdom of men, we're living in the last four or five years of that period of time. Now, if somebody says we've got 40, 50, or 100 years before Christ comes, then they've got to establish convincingly to us that the creation date was 3900 B.C. or 3950 or some other such date. And in the uh, Chronicon Hebricon, which is Brother Thomas's chronology, which is an excellent uh, study, an analysis of the times, in which we feel he's about 85 years incorrect, uh, he's, he's, he fills this thing out very well and, and establishes that the coming of Christ would be in the 1860s, or at the, the millennium would start about somewhere in the 1905-1908 period. So at least he's consistent in saying there are 6,000 years if we measure them from the 4,089 creation date that he, is, he felt was correct. So that if you take 4,089 and add the 6,000 years of man's time to it, you would come to about the early 1900s, 1908 or 1909 or something like that. With no uh, discredit to Brother Thomas, he was wrong. And if you or I said Christ was coming in 1940 or 1950, we would be wrong. So really the only valid date that we can say that it's somewhere future to our time, no matter when we talk to somebody, whether we're here at the stand or, or in private conversation, Christ's coming is future. And if we said it's going to be yesterday, we're wrong. So we want to deal quite emphatically, if we can, with the 4004 creation date. I believe we would all generally agree that we're near the end of the 6,000 years. I haven't heard anybody say that, that we've got another 100 years or another 75 years. 
I believe there have been some mistakes made in, in adhering to the, uh, uh, I don't want to call it a philosophy, I'll, I'll call, what will we call it, a, a, not a theory either, but, but uh, an assumption that, uh, that there, there is a 40-year period, which is the seventh vial, uh, established in Revelation after Christ comes. That is, that he has, or there is a period of time of 40 years in which Christ and the saints will do whatever they have to do before the millennium starts in, in the year 6001. Uh, I don't think we've got the 40 years, and I, I think I hope to do a little bit of work on that in, in the uh, chronology this week. Also, our philosophy uh, that we're going to try to establish is that tied in with the numerical consequences of this uh, Bible account is the prophecy in, in Daniel in which the 1260, 1290, and 1335 are specified in the 12th chapter. I believe it's, the, it's either the last verse or next to last verse when it says that at the 1335 years that Daniel will stand in his lot. And I don't believe I've heard anybody say that that means something else other than Daniel will, be, will have been resurrected from the dead, will have been established at the judgment seat of Christ as a worthy inhabitant of the kingdom, and that if Daniel is there as a worthy inhabitant, so will you and I if we are worthy. So if that 1260, 1290, and, and 1335 can be correctly interpreted and, and placed in some perspective to the uh, history that's going on, has gone on in the past, and is going on now, uh, we can see a, a very strong possibility that Christ would come in the year 1992 and uh, that there would be four or five years of, uh, of the uh, administration of the seventh vial before the establishment of the millennium. Now, the year 1992 uh, certainly is not novel with me, and, and I don't know how many here, to what, what degree of confidence you may have that that is a, uh, a predictable and solid year. But first of all, we have uh, at least a discrepancy between Jewish time and uh, Gentile time. Our years start in January and, and end in December, and the Jewish year starts in what would be our September October season and and go around to the following September October so uh, when we say 1992 we're really talking Gentile measurements and it may be that if if uh, God's mind or if the uh, Bible account speaks in years it may be speaking in terms of the September I, I sort of feel it does speak of the September October period so that really in 1992 may not start until uh, September, October of, of our calendar 1992, which would be, based on this being July, would be uh, a year and three months from, from the present time. So if 1992 starts then, we're a year, instead of being from July to January, only six months away from 1992, we may be uh, a few months more. And when something happens in a year, it can happen on January 1st or December 31st. So, so we've got 365 days 
to say 1992 is the year. So when, when uh, September, October of 1993 arrives, uh, I'll say my theory is going to be dead if, if something hasn't happened. And somebody mentioned to me yesterday, what are you going to do? And, and this, this question has been asked by a lot of people. Are you, are you going to throw in the towel and say, well, you know, all this Bible account is wrong? Uh, I think what most of us would readily acknowledge is if there's anything wrong, it's us. And we just haven't put the pieces together just right. But the idea of putting them together right. is not that we're going to establish anybody as being a prophet, but that our interest is kindled and kept alive by what we see going on. So uh, we'll come to those. We're just sort of trying to establish... Uh, a little bit of a commentary on it. Uh, I think the, the real uh, substance of this is asked by the Apostle Paul. I don't know whether it's Ephesians or what book. But uh, I think he asked the question, seeing that all these things, I'm missing my quotation somewhere, are going to come to pass. He says, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation, and conduct. And that, again, is, uh, we hope, will be the uh, uh, end product of what we have to say. What kind of a person is this, is this going to generate having put together some of the chronologic figures or some of the uh, prophecies or uh, any of the other matters that we come across in the Scriptures? There's something I'd like to try to comment on, and that is that uh, it's just sort of more or less occurred to me lately that in the uh, Bible account, and we're not necessarily talking prophecy or, or, or chronology, but in the total Bible account, the deity, there's a revelation of, of deity. In other words, it is his voice or his word. And he says, I believe in the 138th Psalm, that he has magnified this word above all other things. In other words, this word, if we picked it up to read it, we are really, it's as if God had written us a letter. And that when we read the accounts of the Garden of Eden, or of the flood in Noah's time, or anything we want to read in the Bible, the accounts in... Uh, David, when he is uh, having his problems with Saul, underlying every one of these accounts is uh, a sort of a uh, an insinuative statement that God is saying, "I am. I'm telling you something." And all of this involves the purpose that I started with. I started out in Genesis, and I'm trying to tell you that I created this world to be inhabited, not in vain. And that there's an ongoing program uh, that, that uh, if, if I clap my hands now, a second later, we're, we're that much closer to the fulfillment of that program. So it's a little difficult to, uh, for somebody to say, well, uh, you know, I can read an account in Nehemiah or, or Esther or something else and 
uh, it's just a historical account. But I suggest to you that in every one of these accounts, there's a suggestion that God is saying, see me, recognize me, understand that my ongoing purpose is, is involved in this account. I'm not writing a lot of uh, paper to fill up uh, space and to just occupy this thing as some sort of a novel. So whether we're considering this subject or any other, we, we would suggest that we bear that in mind very uh, sincerely and deeply. But particularly, as, as, uh, as the scriptures themselves say, we're, uh, we're going to refer to three or four references here. That God's, uh, we, I think again we can go back to Genesis 1, which we're going to come to later. Uh, and see that in the beginning God created the earth and we can sort of get started on this 7,000 year plan. But, but the revelation of the mind of God and the purpose of God is centered in His Son. Now this is, of course, we probably even might hear that in some of the uh, Christendom uh, stations, but they don't understand what this 7,000 year period involves. They don't understand the kingdom of God. They don't understand the name of Jesus Christ. They might have some fictitious character established in their mind that, that is a part of a trinity or part of something else, but they don't understand from a Bible account that God has manifested himself primarily in his son and in his son's brethren in the age to come. In the first chapter of Hebrews, we read these words starting at the first verse. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, and we all recognize this to be true, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high now this is this writer to the hebrews is establishing that the son of god has uh, opened the way in which we would more fully understand god and understand that he has a promise involving the the reestablishment of his kingdom within a certain time frame. And further commenting about, about his son, he says, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, 
in the beginning has laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment, and as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But the which of the angels said he at any time, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? There's a great deal said in that chapter about the appointment of God's Son to head up this plan of the ages. And there's also a, uh, a degree of uh, rank that's established in this chapter of the angels. And we're going to talk about them uh, a little bit later. But, but the uh, statement of the first chapter of Hebrews is that Christ has a more excellent position than the angels. The angels, even though they're, they're immortal in their nature and in their, uh, their importance and rank in the program of God, they're very important. They do not have the rank of the Savior, His only begotten Son. The work of Christ is to redeem men from the time of Adam down to the last saint that's called out. Also in the uh, first chapter of John, there's a affirmation there that, uh, that the rank of Christ as the manifestation of God and as the, as the cornerstone of this uh, plan of the ages uh, should be understood. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And we'd like to stop and pause there in just a minute and say that a lot of times we think we have the... Uh, uh, tendency to say when God made certain things that, that we're talking of a physical creation uh, or I should say physical creation only uh, we all recognize that God did form the earth and made it to be inhabited and he made it to develop a 7,000 year plan but in the uh, beginning uh, was his word and his word was to go forth, not to create so many mountains and streams and hills and trees, but to create a people that would be receptive to what he has stated and to, to place their minds and affections uh, in line to receive the benefits of this plan. It says, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, this is uh, John the Baptist. The, the same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. Now here we're talking of God creating a light. 
It was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came into the, into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on the name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word, or the Logos, was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bare him, and John bare witness of him, and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake, He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now we believe this, I'm sure, as Christadelphians, and, and I'm not here to change, change somebody's mind on, on a matter that they may be uh, cloudy on. These, these are things that, that, that we're just re reiterating. But there are many times, there are many times that when which we can say, oh yes, I believe in God, or I believe in Christ, or I believe in the kingdom, or some of these matters, but the, the degree or perception varies with every person in the room. If we have a hundred people here, we've got a we've got a hundred degrees of faith. Now, each of our faith uh, can be improved. That there, I don't think there's any such thing uh, in our experience of saying I have a hundred percent faith. I think we all recognize that, that there are times when our faith rises, perhaps higher than it did yesterday. And there's times that we can probably anticipate that tomorrow it may be less. And that's why we have to keep working on it. That the that our faith may be sustained and built up. It, it's the, uh, Brother Charlie gave the definition in Hebrews 11.1 1 there. Uh, I've, I've forgotten it already. <laughs> uh, substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now, if, that's, if it's something we hope for, it, it still has to be a, a certain degree of cloudiness. If we, if we hope for something to come to pass, we may have a, a concrete idea of, of what the essentials maybe of the kingdom are going to be like, that there will be 12 apostles ruling here and that the divisions of the land will be laid out in such and such a way. But there's still a certain degree of cloudiness. We may be 10 degrees off on our, on our land measurement. or our, we're, I don't think we're off on our 12 apostles, but... But there is a certain indefinite aspect of the kingdom, and that's why we have to keep learning about it and reaffirming that this, the reality of this kingdom is exactly what God purposed in the very first verse of the Bible, that in the beginning when he created the heavens and earth. I've got about two minutes left, and I think I'll try to read one more passage from uh, Romans. And, and uh, again, our purpose in, in reading these verses is to affirm that the revelation of God or the manifestation of the deity is channeled through his son. So that we can look, as Paul said uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, when he's talking about the memorial service, he says, I received this from Christ. 
So if Christ passed it on to Paul, it's authoritative. Well, if God passed something on or established Christ as his representative, then it's authoritative. We, we don't need to look any further if we can confirm this, uh, this point. Going to the first chapter of Romans, we'll read the first six verses. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Now, he's identifying himself in a letter to an ecclesia at Rome. So that ecclesia could be made up of individuals just like you and I that are here today. So Paul is saying, listen to me. I am uh, I, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm an apostle, and I'm uh, a representative of the gospel which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So he's establishing the genealogy of Christ, which ties in with the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called. I, I believe that word probably would uh, be the ecclesia or the invited ones of Jesus Christ. So Paul establishes in his writing to the Romans that if we want to understand the deity, we understand what he has written concerning his son. And of course, if we went further into the book of Romans, we would find many other things in which he establishes that you must know what your native condition is when you're born into this world, what the benefits of Christ's sacrifice and the salvation that he is representing is, and, and how you should walk uh, after the Spirit and not after the flesh. So we'll stop there and hopefully continue tomorrow.